I'd like to uh, welcome everyone to the um, Evidence-Based Medicine podcast. My name is Dr. Joshua Fenton. I'm an associate editor of EBM Journal, and um, we're doing a podcast today discussing an article titled Randomized Trial of Introduction of Allergenic Foods in Breastfed Infants, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, with a lead author, Michael Perkin. We have today um, two experts that are going to um, comment with us on this article. They they were the authors uh, of a commentary in our journal regarding this important clinical trial, and they are Dr. Matthew Greenot and Dr. Karina Center. We'll, we'll introduce them in just a moment, but this trial is important because it is a large randomized trial based in the United Kingdom um, in which uh, 1,303 breastfed infants were randomized to early introduction of six allergenic foods um, as, as opposed to later introduction, and they looked at the primary outcome of food allergy incidents um, uh, among these children from one year of age to three years of age. Doctors uh, Greenhaut and Venter, I just uh, welcome to the EBM podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Greenhaut, I just wonder if you could uh, perhaps just introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit about your um, expertise in this area and, and what you do in your in your clinical practice. I am the co-director of the Food Challenge and Research Unit at Children's Hospital of Colorado in the section of allergy, Department of Pediatrics, in the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Dr. Venter, how about you? I'm a dietitian by background. I obtained my PhD from the prevalence work I did on the Isle of Wight when I was based in the UK. I'm currently assistant professor in um, at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center in Cincinnati. And I just, out of curiosity, are, are, do the two of you work together or collaborate in some of your work? Yes, we are very good friends and close collaborators and have been for a number of years. <laughs> Great, okay. Well, this paper um, that appeared in the New England Journal um, is obviously about the topic of food allergies in, in children and the development of food allergies. And this, is, this has been a very fast-moving field. There's been a lot of developments. And before we delve into the, this paper and what it contains and how it moves the field forward, do you think you could just share with me, um, Dr. Greenot, a little bit about the epidemiology of food allergies in, in children and, and how they manifest in clinical practice? Uh, Food allergy is a a problem that we are seeing more and more of, or at least we're seeing more and more requests for evaluation of food allergy. I think the dogma is that the prevalence has been increasing, and and actually increasing probably doesn't do it justice, skyrocketing. I think, you know, in the United States, we have a little bit of a problem with indirect evidence supporting that, as opposed to in other countries, they've been a little bit more direct and have done challenge-based studies as opposed to survey-based studies where we don't actually know what the outcome of, of the child ingesting the food is. Uh, actually, some of Karina's work on the Isle of Wight has set uh, the standard for this, as well as uh, other work uh, from Australia, really looking at challenge-based prevalence. However, I think most of us in the U.S. would not argue 
that we're seeing more and more referrals for food allergy. It's uh, affecting approximately 8% of children in the U.S., and it, it can be a very difficult diagnosis to manage. Not every food allergy is necessarily outgrown. So things like peanut, tree nut, fish, and shellfish have a, a much lower likelihood of being outgrown, whereas things like milk, egg, wheat, and soy tend to be more readily outgrown in childhood. Um, these are common foods. Those are the eight common food allergens that we deal with. And for the wrong individual who gets a hold of the wrong dose, it can be a very, very serious reaction. I think people try to stratify it as mild, moderate, severe, like we do in other disease states, but it's more like pregnancy. You either are allergic or you're not. And so we go with more universal, universal precautions, carrying self-injectable epinephrine and saying strict avoidance because we just cannot tell what might happen to somebody. It's clear that that parents are very concerned about this issue having and, and many parents and 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 clinicians have 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 heard um of an instance of a of a of a child who has had a severe um food reaction um sometimes even leading to um anaphylactic shock and death um so the um parents are very concerned about it so I'm not surprised to hear you say um uh, Dr. Greenot, that referrals um, are are um, are very high or common right now. Um, I I wonder, if, if Dr. Venter, if you could address, in the past, what have been the recommendations to parents about how they should feed their child to reduce the risk of food allergies? And I'm talking about, you know, perhaps what were what were we recommending to parents ten years ago or so, and and why do why were what was the rationale? behind those recommendations? In the UK in 1998, um, the COT report uh, was issued, which basically states that mothers from a family, from a background where there's a family history of allergic disease wish to avoid peanut during pregnancy, breastfeeding, and in the infant's first three years of life. But our data on the Isle of Wight, which was then subsequently published, showed that um, actually the information wasn't correctly interpreted by healthcare professionals and parents, and that it was first-time mothers who ended up avoiding peanuts um, rather than those from high-risk families. And um, so this was then withdrawn sort of around 2009. So. Um, and I think we saw the same happening here in the United States. And I think Dr. Greenhold can perhaps um, explain a little bit more about that. I mean, I, I think both the UK and the US were in the same boat. Um, I, I think the UK had the, the Food Standards Agency issue guidelines in 1998. There was a, a large report that I think heavily influenced a similar report from the American Academy of Pediatrics in 2000 that basically said there is potential in, in, for a high-risk child, which is defined as a biparental history at that point in time, um, that there was a high risk of introducing products like peanut either while nursing or within the first couple of years of life. And there was right. an active sort of initiative to, say, delay the introduction of high-risk foods in these high-risk individuals until age three. And like like Karina had said, you know, by 2008, it was clear that there was virtually no evidence supporting that and actually emerging evidence from observational studies that suggested that quite the opposite might be true. So in 2008, the AAP issued a partial retraction and more sort of an active update 
saying there's no evidence supporting delay of any uh, introduction of food past four to six months of life. Um, Mm-hmm. Now, with that, that's right. sort of passively saying don't delay, but it's not actively saying introduce. And, and, and that sort of equipoise type of position was quite confusing for both the generalist as well as the specialist because it didn't really tell you what to do other than not avoid. And there's some data that suggested over the next couple of years that actually what happened was still sort of more avoidance. I think we're going to have the opportunity to get into that. I, I think what's really interesting about um, what you describe is that for a, a very, for quite a long time, um, the guidelines were were suggesting um, a delay in introduction of potentially allergenic foods. Um, for quite, yeah, you know, de- delay was the what clinicians were taught and what was widely practiced, and and yet um, we're now coming to question seriously question whether that might have been a um, in the balance a a a, a harmful policy um, or a harmful set of guidelines. But um, maybe we can move on now and talk a little bit about the the inquiring about tolerance t- trial, which is you just referred to the eat trial. And um, uh, Dr. Greenaw, do you think you could tell me a little bit about what the underlying clinical questions uh, were that motivated this trial? So the EAT study was a very provocative and innovative trial. Essentially, it was answering the question, in the child without any risk for allergy who was exclusively breastfed, was there a risk of developing food allergies with introduction of solid foods starting at either three months of life or at six months of life. So this answers a very real-life question about the timing of introducing food into your child. And it goes beyond another trial that was done around the same time, the LEAP study, which looked at just the introduction of peanut allergy in only high-risk kids. So we see this as both a supplement and a complement to that, and it was done by mostly the same people. In this study, they randomized the children to introduction of either cow milk, peanut, fish, sesame, egg, or wheat in a randomized order. Everybody started with dairy, but then were randomized to the other foods, either at three months of life or at six months of life. And they were supposed to also continue breastfeeding. Again, what what they found was that in the um, intention-to-treat population, uh, that they really found no significant difference in the rates of allergy development at three years, which to me is actually not all that surprising. Um, You're looking at kids who are not necessarily at risk for allergy. What this, and it might not be how they drew it up, but what this shows is essentially non-inferiority of the process in a roundabout way, that the timing probably doesn't matter and you can introduce food safely at three months of life. Now, logistically, any, anybody who's a parent, and both Karina and I are, 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 are parents, it, it's very difficult to get a three-month-old to eat certain foods, especially with strong flavors. So things like tahini and whatnot and egg that have strong tastes. However, I, I think that overall, when you look at the two populations, that there really wasn't a significant difference in the rate of developing food allergy. It was pretty low. And it shows you that, you know, either timing is probably right for these children. One of the other things also was that particularly comparing LEAP and the EAT study was that the compliance in in LEAP was so much better. And actually in terms of the dose of peanut they wanted the kids to eat, 
the, the median intake was actually higher than what they wanted. So really good compliance and slightly higher dose than they were um, hoping for. Whereas in EAT, we actually saw the, the, the total opposite, you know, that compliance must, was much um, less and that the, the actually intake of peanut over the course of the week, week was much less as well. So that, that could also have affected, you know, what they finally saw in, in terms of the um, results. And, and I just want to remind readers that the, the earlier trial, the LEAP trial, was a, was a trial um, also published in the New England Journal where, where the early introduction of peanuts to higher-risk kids um, uh, produced a, a rather really profound reduction in the eventual development of peanut allergy. Is that a fair summary of the, of the LEAP trial, um, doctors? Definitely. Even if you just compare peanut to peanut, so the LEAP trial where they had early introduction of peanut only, and then the EAT study where they had early introduction of multiple allergens of which peanut was one. So if we just focus on peanut intake, like for like, in the LEAP study, we had 92% compliance and they were eating about six to nine gram of peanut protein per week. Whereas in the EAT study, we had 62% compliance eating about three grams of peanut protein a week. So you can see uh -huh. that even if we just take the peanut aspect of, leap, of the EAT study out and compare that to LEAP, that the compliance which was much less in EAT than, than what we've seen in LEAP. Well, one of, one of the remarkable things I found on um, reading the study is um, there, we did talk about the non-significant primary result. Um, yeah, there were the actual point estimate. I mean, the point estimates of allergy rates were lower in the intervention group as compared to the control group, but it was non-significant. On the other hand, the journal editors allowed the authors to really spend a lot of time discussing per-protocol analyses. So uh, that is um, looking at the rates of allergy among the, the kids um, who, re, who were adherent to the intervention protocol um, as compared to the control group. So there, there was a lot of emphasis on those results, and many of those results were statistically significantly different. And I, I just wonder, Dr. Greenot, if you could talk a little bit about those per-protocol analyses and help us understand those results and, and whether you found them to be trustworthy in, 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 in the context of this trial. I, I agree. I think it's a, a little unconventional to allow such highlighting of per-protocol analysis. I, I think it, it certainly um, it, that's not the first time that I've heard it described sort of in the way that, that you did. You know, the, the data are what they are, and the, and the, the manuscript is published in a well-regarded journal. And I, I think, let's look at the results, you know, first. So, you know, yes, in, in among those who complied strictly with the protocol and didn't drop out, you saw small, significant but protective effects from introducing at three versus six months. However, you know, you got to look at the effect size. It's small. You know, the numbers needed to treat were huge. So you could say, yes, there's a small protective effect, but it's sort of washed out by the fact that you would have to give this intervention to a number of kids to even derive a small benefit. So, um, 
again, I think that goes back to what I was saying before. While there might have been significant results in the per-protocol analysis, overall, I do think that this trial really highlights non-inferiority in that it really didn't matter and that you were unlikely to probably see allergy develop in this population to begin with. So I think in that context, I can understand why there's a little bit more highlighting of the per-protocol analysis and saying, well, yes, if you look very closely uh, in those who, you know, adhered to the egg protocol, there was a significant effect and the number needed to treat there was nearly 25. And with peanut, you know, also a small but significant effect and the number needed to treat there was 40. So could you use this as evidence to say, you're seeing benefit in both high and no risk kids? Yes, absolutely. I think as a skeptic and a critical appraiser of evidence, you need to look into reasons why you may see no effect in intention to treat and effect in per protocol. And that has to do with probably dropout, not at random. Um, and if you looked even further and read the editorial that accompanied the article, the author of the editorial was very concerned uh, about reverse causality here and that, you know, some of the parents were pulling their kids out of the trial or not complying when they were seeing signs that they interpreted might have been allergies. So, um, you know, was that influencing the results to some degree? Thank you. The other, the other thought um, that I had about the per-protocol emphasis, uh, I mean, clearly um, a concern would be that that the patients who were excluded from the analysis had a had a had a worse outcome, and and um, to some extent that that had to be true because we we do see some um, the the rate of allergy in the intervention group is higher when you include those patients who were excluded from the per protocol analysis, but um, but I do think. Um, I do think the authors, to some extent, do address this issue of reverse causality by presenting. They did do some presentation of the outcomes among the patients who who were excluded, if I recollect. Um, I suppose one one possibility um, for um, why the the journal editors allowed um, an emphasis on the per protocol analysis was that apparently the the they found that. Um, the early introduction of the allergenic foods were, were, was quite safe. And um, Dr. Venter, I, I wonder if you could just comment on the results in this trial with regard to the safety. Um, what did they find and, and, and what did you think of the results in terms of, of how safe it was uh, for the investigators to introduce these allergenic foods at an earlier point? They did report on the safety and they did say that, you know, um, Overall, these these challenges were safe to conduct. And again, I think I personally might have to look into much more detail. I myself have challenged hundreds, literally hundreds of babies from six months onwards. And there is always the concern that when we do food challenges in young infants that and they, they do get severe reactions that in particularly the very young group, it may be very difficult to actually... Um, you know, resuscitate babies. So there is always this concern about introducing allergens in young infants and what the severity of the reaction can be and whether the physician and the particular institution where the challenge is being conducted can actually deal with the very severe reaction. So, so it is reassuring in many ways that, you know, safety did not seem to be too much of a problem in these trials. 
Yeah, well, I, I had a feeling that perhaps that was what um, might have convinced the editors of this journal that that the authors could emphasize the per protocol data since since they you know they basically were able to say the intervention was safe um, and it might have you know it may have benefits it doesn't seem to have harms but um, I wonder if you could Dr Venter I wonder if you um, at, with with your background in dietetics. Um, could talk a little bit about based on the the data he, you see here and and the and the scientific information that we now have. Um, how should we be introducing foods to an average risk well infant? What would your recommendations be to uh, to parents who are who are seeing a, a general a generalist physician um, with their newborn for a well child visit? So I'm going to give you my personal opinion and how I now practically do this. I think we're all very clear that we, we have an answer for peanut now. And I think that answer is there's no need to wait. Try and get it in when you start weaning. Whether that should be exactly four months or whether that should be exactly six months for the general population, we don't know. But we have a very clear message, there's no need to wait. When you start giving fruit and vegetables and things are going well, do get the peanut butter or the, you know, mashed up bamboo snacks in. I think we have some evidence to say with egg, there may be no need to wait either, but with egg, we really might want to start at least with the cooked version first. So you want to have egg in baked goods or perhaps a hard-boiled egg when you start introducing. And then we have very little data about what to do with the other allergens such as particularly the sesame in tahini paste and, and wheat. You know, we still we keep getting the conflicting information about best age to introduce wheat. Fish, we have very little data that we have from eat. And actually in eat, in the, I think the three cases of fish allergy that they had, they saw more fish allergy in the early introduction than the late introduction group. So I, I don't think that we should actually make any practical um, conclusions from, from the EAT study in terms of fish introduction. Then, of course, we have a total different issue with milk because the majority of infants, as much as we'd like to believe that babies are breastfed, breastfeeding rates are pretty low across the world, and many, many infants have infant formula introduced even in the first few days of life, so they may still continue to have breast milk, but you know they, they also consume infant formula alongside that. So milk, I think, normally by we start weaning the majority of infants, and definitely my data on the Isle of Wight indicated it, that by the time they start having solid foods, they've already had milk in the form of infant formula. So that's normally how I, I get to see these babies. Then start with um, introduction of fruit and vegetables. We normally would then get the peanut butter in or any form of peanut that's not a choking risk for young infants. Go on to introducing um, egg and wheat. Now, you have to remember that in the EAT study, they've always introduced wheat last and always after six months of age. So we, we, we normally wait till around six months before we do wheat. And then depending really on the family's eating patterns and practices, we will do tahini and fish at some point in time. You know, clearly if you live in an area where people do eat hummus and sesame paste, it's going to be natural for that infant to have these foods within the first year of life. 
um, it's harder in families where they don't even know what you're talking about and where it's definitely not part of, you know, family eating practices. So, so I think it's sort of like work with every family. Milk is normally not an issue because they've already had that, but if they've not had it, it would be one of the first foods I introduced. Just get mom and baby to start introducing food when the kid is developmentally ready. So when they sort of like sitting up and they have some mouth control, start with fruit and veg and then follow on with the allergens sequentially. But, but I think my message to the moms always is relax. You know, if you've missed a day, it's okay. If they don't want to eat the full dose, it's okay. If they mm -hmm. want to eat more mm -hmm. than the full dose, then it's also okay. If they don't want to eat for a whole week because they have a fever or they have diarrhea, it's okay. You know, I think we should just really, like you've said in one of your questions, don't medicalize weaning or introduction of solid foods. It's a part of normal development. It's, a, it's the time that moms and babies and parents really should enjoy. And I think we, we should not overburden them about this, with this issue of, of allergen introduction. Right. Well, that's very good. I, I appreciate both your um, perspectives on that. And I just, but before we close, I, I would just like, Dr. Greenaut, you can just, just tell us um, what you consider to be a high-risk kid. I mean, we have a sense of sort of what we want to do with the average-risk um, children, which is um, you know, essentially um, um, we're going to try to try to uh, follow Dr. Venter's advice, but what kids would be at higher risk and would and, and would, would require a little bit of a, a more cautious approach? I, I, I do think the child with, you know, severe eczema um, is, is probably without argument considered a high-risk kid for the development of food allergy. I think you can make stronger arguments that mild to moderate probably is less of a risk. I think some allergists are going to consider any child with eczema as, as a risk. And I think most parents and um, primary care physicians probably are going to consider the child with eczema as being at risk for food allergy. Um, I think that overall most allergists would agree that having another IgE-mediated food allergy probably places you at higher risk for developing a second or potentially third food allergy as well. Now, I think you can make arguments that should that food allergy, should egg be weighted more than milk or wheat or whatnot, uh, you know, um, in the NIA guidelines which pretty much adopted the LEAP uh, screening criteria word for word. Um, right now, the high-risk child is being defined as a child with severe eczema and or egg allergy. I think if you look at all other trials that came before it, it was a biparental history of allergic disease in the parent. Well, I just want to thank Drs. Greenaut and Venter for joining us on the EBM podcast. And uh, it's been a very um, fascinating conversation to, to have with both of you. Thank you both. Thank you. And um, for listeners, I, I'd like you to know that you can find other EBM podcasts on the EBM website. You can also be able to, would be able to locate Dr. Greenot's and Dr. Venter's commentary there titled, A Randomized Trial of Introduction of Allergenic Foods in Breastfed Infants, uh, published in the New England Journal in 2016. Thank you. This is Dr. Joshua Fenton, Associate Editor of EBM Journal. Mm -hmm.